Well, the story of David and Goliath is one of the best known and best loved in the Bible. Even so, it is perhaps one of the least understood, presented as it so often is, as a lesson on how we can overcome the giants in our lives. But whilst it is true that there is much we can learn from how David deals with the threat of Goliath, it's important that we see that there is far more to this passage than simply that. So let's look at Samuel 1 Samuel 17 and see what else is there to be seen. First of all, we'll look at how the Israelites saw the situation they found themselves in. And then we'll look at how David viewed that same situation and see what a difference that differing perspective made. And then, having briefly considered what we can learn for when we have difficulties to overcome, we'll take a look at the bigger picture, the one that matters most. First of all then, how the situation seemed to the people of Israel. Well, the Philistines are up to their old tricks again and are waging war against the Israelites. And so the two armies find themselves lined up against one another on either side of the valley of Elah. And then out amongst the Philistine ranks steps Goliath, their champion. And what an imposing champion he is. He's built like a tank, literally. He's massive, standing very nearly 10 feet tall. He's clothed in impenetrable armour and he's heavily armed. He is a lethal fighting machine. And not only is he equipped for battle, his attitude is equally threatening. Defying the Israelites and calling on them to find from within their number one who would fight him on their behalf. And this defiance goes on and on. For 40 days, Goliath taunts the Israelite army both day and night. Why have you come out to set your battle in array? Am I not a Philistine and ye servants to, to Saul? Choose you a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then shall ye be our servants and serve us. Goliath, you see, wants to make slaves of the Israelites. And he urges them to choose themselves a man who would meet him in battle. But the people of Israel have already chosen for themselves a man. Earlier in 1 Samuel, we're told how they had rejected God as their king and, desiring to be like the surrounding nations, had demanded instead a human king. And so, as he is sometimes wont to do, God had given them over to their evil desires and the result, with the result that Saul had been made to reign over them. But where is King Saul now? I'll tell you where he is. Quaking with fear, along with everyone else who made up the Israelite army. Like them, he is dismayed and greatly afraid. Though himself of impressive height, Saul too is scared of Goliath. The king the people had chosen is simply not up to the task of defending those who had put their trust in him. The situation seems hopeless, with nobody, apparently, 
up to the task of defeating Goliath. But then, in verse 12, David enters the story. One who recently had been appointed by Samuel as God's chosen future king. One selected not on the basis of his outer appearance, but rather on account of him being a man after God's own heart. David is from Bethlehem, a town about 14 miles away from the Valley of Elah. He's the youngest of eight brothers, of which the oldest three, Eliab, Abinadab and Shammah, had followed Saul to the battle. Now, though there is some debate about it, it was seen from the closing verses of 1 Samuel 16 that David had by now already entered Saul's court, playing his lyre to refresh Saul whenever a harmful spirit was upon him. And so we read in verse 15 how David travels back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And then one day, David's father sends David back to where the Israelite army are camped in order to learn how his oldest sons are faring. Early in the morning... David sets off, but not before ensuring that his father's sheep are in safe hands. He arrives and is talking with his brothers when out comes the champion of Gath again to once more repeat his taunting of the Israelites. But although Goliath's words are the same, this time there is something very different about how they were heard. Because this time... They were heard by David. And oh, how different to the rest of the Israelites is David's response to to Goliath's arrogance. David, you see, factors in God. Whereas all the men of Israel are once again afraid of the giant who seems to pose such a threat to them, David sees Goliath for what he is. Nothing but a jumped-up little upstart when compared with the one true God. Hear the disdain in David's, David's words. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? I think we see here something of what it means for David to be a man after God's own heart. David is one who desires that God is honoured for the God he really is. Recognising God's greatness, David has a totally different perspective on the situation. Whereas the Israelite army see Goliath as a fearsome fighting machine, David sees him as uncircumcised. That is, as somebody who is not part of God's covenant people. As such, the Philistine doesn't stand a chance against the armies of the living God, the one who David knows is for the people of Israel. David, though, isn't naive. He recognises that Goliath is the big bad giant. But he also knows that irrespective of how big and strong Goliath is, God is bigger and stronger. As such, David considers the fear of those quaking and the prospect of going into battle with one so relatively puny as misplaced. And so David is more than up for taking on Goliath's challenge. What shall be done, he asks, for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? So, hurrah for David! 
Well, you would imagine, would you not, that that would be the response from those in the Israelite army. You would have thought that even if they considered David's confidence unrealistic, they would surely have appreciated his zeal for God, his desire to defend God's honour. But not David's big brother, Eliab. He is seething. Despite the fact that David had been sent to them by their father and had taken the time um, to make sure that his flock were well looked after, um, Eliab accuses David of not only neglecting his flock, but also having evil motivations for travelling out to see the battle. I wonder what other thoughts Eliab might have harboured as he later watched David walk out to fight Goliath. I wonder if he secretly hoped that David would get killed. It's surely a possibility, isn't it? Given the nature of the human heart, something that God himself describes as desperately sick and deceitful above all things. Be that as it may, I suspect that the truth is that Eliab felt shown up by his little brother's bravery. But David's undoubted bravery doesn't come from any confidence in himself. Rather, it comes from confidence in God. David has, as he points out, done nothing wrong. He has merely spoken a word, a true word, expressing something of God's worth and the honour that is due his name. How sad, then, that Eliab, himself an Israelite, should be so critical of David's desire to fight for God. And how sad too when we sometimes attribute false motives to those who by their great enthusiasm for God show up our comparative half-heartedness. And so just as David now turns away from his brother perhaps we should not be too surprised if those we treat with equal contempt sometimes turn away from us. There are, though, some who hear David's words more favourably, and so eventually Saul too learns that David is up for the fighting Goliath. And as a result, David is brought before the woeful king of Israel. Like others before him, Saul clearly doubts David's ability to triumph over the giant, and he wastes no time in telling him so. You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, he says, for you are but a youth. And he's been a man of war since his youth. Saul also then is not seeing what David sees. He too is leaving God out of the equation. David, though, continues to factor him in. And so, although he has no confidence in his own ability to fight Goliath, he has complete confidence that God will give him victory. Now, I'm sure that, God's, that's why, that David's confidence comes, at least in part, from the fact that he has already come through many dangers, toils and snares. Previously, when he'd been looking after his father's sheep, there had been occasions when a lion or a bear had come and taken a lamb from the flock. David had fought, had fought and killed these predatory beasts that had threatened to devour those he was obligated to defend. Even so, he recognises that it was the Lord who had delivered him from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. Having graciously brought him safe thus far, 
David is confident that God will also graciously deliver him from the hand of Goliath. David is prepared to bank everything on God defending his own honour by defeating Goliath and rescuing his people. Well, it seems Saul is finally persuaded that the shepherd boy should go out to fight the giant. And so he says to David, go, and the Lord be with you. But first he dresses him in his own armour. Clearly, though, they're not of a similar size. And rather than providing any protection, Saul's armour just gets in the way. So David takes it off and approaches Goliath with nothing but the weapons of a shepherd, a staff and a sling, the latter taken in order to propel the five smooth stones that David has placed in his shepherd's pouch. And then begins a war of words. True to form, Goliath continues to speak arrogantly, dismissing David as an irrelevance and promising to not only kill him, but even worse in Israelite eyes, deny him burial by offering his flesh to the birds and beasts. And then David speaks, declaring how he comes in the name of the one that Goliath has been defying, namely the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. David confidently asserts that having cut off Goliath's head, it won't be his body that is given to the birds and beasts, but rather the bodies of the Philistine army. And the reason David gives for why all this will happen is simply so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all those gathered to witness the event will know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. Then Goliath hears the last words he will ever hear. Words that sum up what David knows to be true. For the battle is the Lord's, the shepherd boy says to the giant, and he will give you into our hand. See, like the Israelites, Goliath too has left God out of his calculations. David, though, has seen everything clearly. He knew this battle wasn't his battle. He knew it was God's battle. And as such, he knew the outcome was assured. And so, after 47 verses of preamble, the actual fight is over in just two verses. As Goliath advances towards David, so David advances towards Goliath. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and smote the Philistine on his forehead that the stone sank into his forehead and he fell upon his face to the earth. So David kills Goliath and does so, the scripture tells us, with no sword in his hand, fulfilling what David had said earlier about how the Lord saves not with the sword or spear. The, the battle really was the Lord's and it was God himself who gave Goliath into the hands of the Israelites. And if that wasn't enough to make clear the spiritual nature of this battle, 
David then takes Goliath's own sword and uses it to decapitate the Philistine. An act reminiscent perhaps of 1 Samuel 5, when the Ark of God had been placed in the house of the Philistine god Dagon. The next morning, the people of Ashdod had found the image of Dagon lying face down on the ground before the Ark of God. The people put Dagon back in his place, but the next morning, they once again found him face down before the Ark of God. This time, his head separated from his body, just like Goliath here. So finally, with their champion defeated, the Philistines flee and are pursued by a rejuvenated Israelite army. The upshot being that the Israelites enjoy the spoils of war as they plunder the camp of their routed enemy. And so we see the difference that can come about when we factor God into the equation. Before David's arrival on the scene, the Israelites, seemingly with no regard for God, had been quaking in their boots. David, though, saw things differently. He saw Goliath's actions as an affront to God. And confident that the battle was the Lord's, he was prepared to fight with the strength that God supplied for the honour of God's name. And so the battle was won, and the giant was overcome. Now I said at the start of this sermon that 1 Samuel 17 is sometimes used to suggest how, like David, we too can overcome the giants in our lives. Now don't misunderstand me. There is much that we can learn from the passage about the need to recognise God's constant presence in our lives. The importance of standing up for God in the face of opposition and the fact that God can always be trusted in times of difficulty. All these things are part of what it is to love God and we should therefore surely do them. But if that is all we take from this passage and imagine that if we succeed in living more like David, all our struggles will be overcome, then we will have missed the point of the passage. Firstly, this is because, as I hope I've made plain, it was not David who won the battle. On the contrary, it, as David himself said, the battle belonged to the Lord. Furthermore, though, he was, furthermore though he was Israel's greatest king, David was far from perfect. And if we, are, if we were to read on in our Bibles, it wouldn't be long before we reached 2 Samuel 11, where David is seen embarking on an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, and in order to cover the fact that he got her pregnant, arranging for Uriah, her husband, to be killed. Perhaps then, doing it like David isn't such good advice. And another reason why we need to take more from this passage than be like David is because we will fail in that endeavour. And what then will we have to console ourselves with? None of us here today loves God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. And neither do we love our neighbour as ourselves. We all have failed to keep God's law. And so, if we want to identify with anyone in today's passage, 
it should be with the terrified members of the Israelite army who are in desperate need of a champion. Because isn't it the case that like them, we too are helpless and in need of a champion? Because of our sin, we too need to be rescued from the terrifying punishment we deserve from death itself, our last great enemy. The truth is that all of us here today need a saviour. But listen up. The gloriously good news is that is exactly what we have. And you know, that saviour isn't David. It's David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So let's finish by seeing the main point of the story of David and Goliath. Let's allow it to point us to Jesus and show us what he has done for us. First of all then, notice that there are only two fighters in this story and that everyone else is a spectator. The first combatant we are introduced to is Goliath and the first thing that is mentioned is his height. And nearly 10 feet tall, there is something supernatural about him. And note how he is described. He is a fearsome enemy, one who we are told is dressed in a coat of mail or scale armour. Wouldn't he have looked somewhat snake-like? Is Goliath perhaps beginning to remind you of someone? If not, here's something else that might make it more obvious. This aggressive and arrogant individual is someone who defies the living God and taunts the Israelites every morning and every evening. Just like the devil, who we're told in Revelation 12, accuses us day and night before our God. Goliath, then, is surely a picture of Satan, the one who wants to enslave us. The terms of engagement are set up so that the victory will not be determined by the rank and file soldiers, but, by, but rather by each nation's champion, the one who, as their nation's representative, will fight on their behalf. But who will fight for Israel? No one, it seems. Certainly not Saul, who, like all those things that we might put our hope in, is simply not up to bringing about the rescue that is required. But then David arrives, fresh from diligently looking after his sheep. He has been sent by his father and arrives at just the right time for him to hear Goliath's taunts. Sounding familiar? He comes from Bethlehem. Now sounding familiar? Well, consider this. This good shepherd, he's been looking after the sheep, has recently been anointed by Samuel as God's chosen king. Furthermore, this shepherd king has been filled with the Holy Spirit. So do you see? David is surely a picture of of Jesus, the one who came to save us. 
And so David, this Christ-like figure, goes out to fight for his people. And he prevails over the enemy. But notice how he does it. The stone flung at Goliath strikes him on the head. More than that, the stone sinks into his forehead. Does that remind you of anything? Isn't this reminiscent of the promise of Genesis 3, 14 to 16? When the serpent was told that one day someone would come and crush his head. And so the mighty enemy is defeated by one who seemingly weak secures victory for his people. Which is exactly what Jesus did. David and Goliath doesn't just give us rules by which to live our lives, rules we will all too often fail to keep. Rather, the story of David and Goliath points us first back to the Garden of Eden and then forward to Calvary, where seeming weakness and apparent defeat was in fact the means by which a great victory was secured. A victory over that last great enemy, even over death himself. Because when Jesus went on to the cross, like David, he went to fight on our behalf. He was our representative, our champion. And as he went, he didn't simply suffer the sniping remarks of those he was representing. Far worse than Eliab, who sneered at David, Jesus went to the cross whilst those for whom he was fighting were baying for his blood. Crucify him. Crucify him, they cried. And had we been there, would not our mocking voice have been among the scoffers too? Even so, of his own free will, Jesus went to the cross. Whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Whilst we were his enemies, he laid down his life for us. And as a result, everything changed. Bearing our sin, he bore on the cross the punishment we deserve, paying the penalty not only for what we have done in the, wrong in the past, but also all that we will ever do wrong in the future. And so with our sin atoned for, the devil has nothing on us. He can accuse us before our Heavenly Father all he wants, day and night if he likes, but he'll not achieve anything by it. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because of Jesus' substitutionary death, we stand totally, totally forgiven. Because of his life of perfect obedience, we are clothed in robes of righteousness. Acting as our champion, Jesus has won a victory that we could never win. Acting as our representative, he has brought about what we could never bring about ourselves. It is all because of what Jesus did that we are reconciled to God. And so with the enemy defeated, we, like the Israelites in the passage, can surge forward with a shout of joy and reap the benefits that have been won for us. Furthermore, we can look forward to that sure and certain hope, the resurrection that will be ours when Christ returns. This is very good news. 
This is the gospel, the power of God for salvation. And though it may not result in the immediate removal of all the difficulties that we currently have to face, the giant-sized problems that continue to threaten us, it does nonetheless assure us that our biggest foe has been dealt with. Death is swallowed up in victory. As such, though the tears may yet flow, we have something that can sustain us through the pain, something that can cheer us in our sorrow. A God who is for us, a God who loves us, and a God from whom nothing can separate us. Therefore, as David urges us in one of his psalms, be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. And let us wait patiently for the day when there will be no more mourning, no more crying and no more pain. For the day when every tear will be wiped from our eyes. For the day when death will be no more. And all of this, not because of something we have done, but because of something Christ has done. So here's the take-home message from the story of David and Goliath. Its point is not to hold up the law and tell us what we have to do. Rather, its point is to hold out the gospel and show us what Jesus has already done. It's there to make plain that you and I We're not the hero of our lives. Christ is. We cannot overcome the giants in our lives. But Christ can. More than that, he already has. Jesus is our champion. And what a champion he is. And if that's not a reason to sing, I don't know what is. So we're going to close with our final hymn, number 258, Before the Throne of God Above. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Saviour died, my sinful, your sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon us. Mm.